Well, good morning. I, I pray that um, you're excited about this series in Revelation. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Today we are day 73 into year 2021. I'm sure many of you, you had established some goals, some resolutions at the beginning of the year, right? How are those going? I'm guessing, like most years, by this point in the year, probably not so well. Uh, many of you start off strong, you're like, this is the year. I got this. You had this zeal about you, a deep love to see some changes in your life. But then just life happens, right? We get busy. Maybe you got sick. Maybe it was the ice storm, losing electricity. Maybe it was losing electricity again. Uh, maybe threw you out of your routine. Maybe your goals weren't realistic or obtainable. Usually at some point we lose that excitement that we had when we first started these things. I do this all the time with projects or hobbies. My wife could list um, a ton of projects that I have started and for whatever reason I don't finish them. I start another project before I finish the other project. I'm, I'm, I'm even worse with hobbies. I get so excited about a hobby. The most recent one is chess. So like I've been watching YouTube videos on chess. I've been playing with Jay, some, some chess games. Um, but I, I, will, I will get so obsessed with like a hobby. And I'll watch videos or read books to master that. I will spend money, resources, time, energy one of those hobbies, then after a few months, I move on to another hobby. I lose that love that I had for it. What's worse than projects or hobbies, we do the same thing with relationships. I see this happen in marriages all the time, that excitement that when you, when you first meet someone, you get consumed and you're just infatuated. You can't get enough of that person. You talk for hours on the phone. You hang out just being near that person. You get married and the wedding's amazing. Um, many of you um, got to see Miles and Janet yesterday. Just that love they have for each other. Um, then over time, something happens. It's like you mix in career, maybe different visions, kids, finances. And somewhere down the road, the two of you who are so giggly, consumed with each other, you realize you just live with a roommate. It's not just marriage. We do the same thing with God. And that's the heart of this passage this morning in Revelation. Uh, th this morning is, is the first letter of these seven letters written to the seven churches of Revelation. Uh, this first letter is written to the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, as we'll, as we'll see this morning, it's much like that classic oldies song, how it says, you've lost that loving feeling. That's kind of how they would be described, and maybe that's how God would describe you this morning, that you've just lost that loving feeling, that deep desire you have for God, for others. It's kind of decreased, it's faded. Maybe you're just going through the motions this morning. Now I know you haven't missed a Sunday morning, you haven't neglected prayer or your time in the Word, but you're just going through the motions. Maybe you are like the church in Ephesus. 
that you've lost your first love. So let's trust the promise of chapter 1. That those who read aloud the words of Revelation will be blessed. And let's read aloud the words of Revelation chapter 2 starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Father, we look forward um, to this day that we will be with you forever. Lord, we see this church has lost its first love. It's doing a lot of good things here. But Lord, it seems like they were doing things out of obedience, out of, out of an obligation of obedience. And I, I pray that, Lord, you would um, penetrate our heart today. That we'd be able to look into the mirror and see where we are. To see if, we've, if we too have abandoned our first love. And that we're just doing a bunch of just rituals, a bunch of good deeds, Lord. I pray that you'd convict our hearts. May we not be a church full of Pharisees. Focus on our moralism. But may we, may we worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is the first of these seven letters written to the seven churches in modern day Turkey. Uh, when you read all seven letters in one setting, which we won't do this morning, but you're free to do that this week, you're going to see some patterns throughout these seven letters. Each are addressed to, to the seven angel or to the angel of that particular church. So this is to the angel of Ephesus. Each church is known by Jesus. He knows these churches. He describes what he knows about them in great detail, both bad and good. In most of the letters, Jesus says, but I have this against you. He says that in this, to this church. And then he tells the church where they have gone wrong. Each letter has a call to repentance and a threat if they don't repent. The letters conclude with a command for those with ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each of the letters have a word of wisdom and application for all churches throughout history until Jesus comes again. So the, the wisdom and application that he gave to the church at Ephesus, he gives to us this morning as well. So let's, let's walk through this. Um, this first letter. Verse 1 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, 
the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Um, Just in case you weren't here last week, in chapter 1, we were told that the seven stars um, are the seven angels of the seven churches. And the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. So um, stars refer to angels, and then lampstands refer to churches. The first church that is addressed is in the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a really important city in the first century. Today, if it was like a city in America, this would be a type of city that would have like all your professional sports. You know, those are your major cities, like New York, L.A., you're going to have... Um, um, all these luxuries, and so that was Ephesus. Politically, it was the capital of Asia. Commercially, it was a, it was a major seaport, so it was super important. And then it had these um, roads that would, the highly trafficked roads that intersect in Ephesus, so it was super important. Religiously, uh, you can see this even in the book of Acts, that the city was the center for the worship of the, um, the fertility goddess Artemis. Um, or in Roman mythology, it was, uh, she was known as Diana. So this is where um, um, they worship the, god- the goddess um, of Artemis. And um, even today, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, that's where it's found. That's the, the temple of Artemis. You can still see the, um, uh, the remains of it there today. Thousands of priests and priestesses served in this temple. Um, Many of them served as religious prostitutes. The Apostle Paul, he helped start this church. You can see that in Acts 19 and 20. Um, and he ministered there for several years. Uh, the book of Ephesians was written for this same church that we see in Revelation. So were First and Second Timothy. Um, first Corinthians was actually written from Ephesus to the church at Corinth. Um, early church tradition shows that the Apostle John, who's writing this letter of uh, Revelation, that he ministered there, that he was um, really involved in ministry at, at Ephesus. So even his letters, the letters of John, may have been addressed to issues in the churches in and around Ephesus. Uh, John is currently um, on the island of Patmos, as we're reading in Revelation uh, which is only about 60 miles southwest of Ephesus. So that's kind of the background to the city, major city. Maybe like today, New York, L.A., Chicago, Atlanta, Dallas. Uh, and so here John is. Um, he's instructed to write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I love the tense of this verse, that Jesus holds, present tense, the seven stars in his right hand, which means that he has authority over the angels. He currently, presently, oversees the angels currently. They submit to him. Uh, And then we see Jesus walks, again, present tense. He walks among the lampstands, which means Jesus is present with his church, his people. Currently, right now, Jesus walks among his people. God is not an absentee father or some far-off deity. He is there, up close, personal, intimately present in your life. He watches over you. He sees what you are doing. He hears what you say. And he knows what you think and even what's in your heart. 
And that should bring tremendous encouragement to us, assurance that, that we have someone who's so near to us. At the same time, it should also bring incredible um, um, accountability and maybe fear to your life, knowing that he knows you that well. You cannot hide from the presence of God. He's everywhere. Verse 2, because he knows everything, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That's a pretty good list. So it seems like it's a pretty good church in Ephesus. Including verse 6, there are nine good things that this Ephesian church is doing well. And the Lord commends them. He commends them for their patient endurance, for standing up against bad theology, false teachers. And these are, these are things that we look for. This is, seems like it's a good church. You could basically take these nine things that they're doing well, put them in two categories. They have good deeds and good theology. Um, they're, they're working, they're toiling, patiently enduring. They're bearing for Jesus' name. Then everything we see about their theology is good. They're, they're recognizing differences between good and evil. They're testing those who claim to be messengers or apostles of other churches and refusing to recognize them as, as those positions. But even though they were doing these good deeds and had solid theology, we see in verse 4 that something was missing. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. But I have this against you. It's like the Lord builds them up, and you guys are doing all these things great, and he just hits them. But this you have abandoned the love that you had at first. I mean, hearing that from anyone would be hard. Hearing it from Christ, man, those words would sting. Hearing it, it's like he's writing this letter, you're doing all these things great, and they're like, that's right, we are. I know. And then he hits them. But I have this against you. Just settle down a little bit. Don't stick your chest out quite yet. But he says it because he loves them. He loves this church. He loves these people. But here he says, there's an area of your life where I'm in opposition. All these things, yeah, I love those things about you. But let's talk about this area this morning. This is an area that disappoints and offends me. It's important we keep in mind that, that, that we are his children. And as children, we can disappoint our Heavenly Father and, and so, here's this rebuke, and yeah, you're doing these things right. It's like a parent. Just because your kids do these things right, doesn't mean you let them do these things wrong. You love them enough where you're still going to correct these wrong things. If you remember from last week, that picture of Jesus, he said he had eyes like a fiery flame. He sees something that he does not like, and here he speaks honestly about it. He's straightforward with them. I love that. Like, in our culture, we're so afraid to tell someone that they're doing something wrong. 
It's hard because everybody's so sensitive. We're on like, just like, it's like we're walking on like, like eggshells. Like we're so nervous. Like we're so afraid we're going to hurt somebody. Here Jesus is taking this risk. He's so straightforward with them. They were doing many things still right, but somewhere in their past, they quit doing those right things with the right motivation. And that's the fear that, you know, we can have today. That, that we can do a lot of good things. It all looks good. But it's just a facade. It's just religion. It's just about morals. Becoming humanitarians. Somewhere along the way, we've, we've lost our first love. And that's the problem here. The church at Ephesus, they didn't have a head problem. They had great theology. They had a heart problem. Obedience out of duty had replaced obedience out of delight. At one point, they, they loved doing these things. They had this deep love for God. Out of that deep love for God, they loved to serve but somewhere along the way, they, they, they lost that. And, and delight, serving and obeying out of delight became serving and obeying out of, out of duty, out of obligation. And the difference bet between those two, it's massive. It's massive. Obedience out of delighting in Christ is our goal as Christians. God wants you to serve him out of a deep love and gratitude um, in which you have for him. That's why we serve. Whereas obedience out of sense of duty makes you look like a Pharisee. It's more concerned about being moral. It's about being religious. And the church at Ephesus, they had become like in danger of, of being a, a Pharisaical church. Just a, a church full of Pharisees. Pharisees were good at doing you know, good things. It's all for show. They'd stand out on the streets and pray, hoping someone would notice them. Yeah, but they were praying, but it was in the wrong heart. Jesus says, it's, he looked at the works of the Pharisees and said, the cup looks good on the outside, but the inside of the cup is filthy. You need to clean the inside of the cup. And so many of us, we're just, we just focus on the outside of the cup. So here's this church that had been doing right things. And I mean, it's nine right things. So what's the big deal? It's only one wrong thing, right? But that one thing that they had abandoned, the love that they had at first, it threatened to void or replace all the good things that they were, were known for. This one thing was more important than the nine things. And so this is true for so many churches today. Many churches appear to be doing a lot of good things. We're super busy, aren't we? A lot of, a lot of good things keeping us busy. You've got Sunday morning, Sunday night, possibly if you have youth. Um, then you've got D groups and community groups. And you've got, you're serving, you're volunteering. A lot to keep us busy. But what heart are you serving out of? Maybe we've begun to neglect and lost the most important thing in our lives, that love for Christ and his gospel. What's crazy is somehow this church at Ephesus, they had withstood all the, like, the attacks, 
attacks of false doctrine. Um, you know, outsiders pressing upon, um, you know, just even um, the evil, um, just in Ephesus with the, with, with the temple there, the, the worship of, of, of Artemis. They had withstood all those attacks, but they had not withstood the temptations of the world, that they had abandoned their first love. Um, they began to have eyes for other things. And, and we can do the same thing. We, we love to serve sometimes because people make much of us. We feel good about ourselves. Look how holy I am. Look at all the things I'm doing. Sometimes you're doing those things just so people will notice you, just so they will say, wow, look how good you are. But they had lost, they had abandoned that love that they had for God at first. Does that describe your heart this morning? You know, why are you even here this morning? That I have a deep love for Christ, you just couldn't wait to be here? Or there's pressures. You knew that, that maybe your deacon would call you, or a community group would, would know, or maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's friends that you're just trying to impress. You've kind of lost that first love. How long has it been that way? How long has it been since you felt that way about Christ, where you just would do anything for him? You, you remember that season in your life where you would just do anything for Jesus? Like when he just stirred your affections and you're just saying, Lord, I will go anywhere. I will do anything for you. Just name it, Lord. I'm so in love with you and what you've done for me. I will serve you in any way, Lord. You're like the prophet Isaiah. Here I am. Send me. But then kind of like when you started dating someone that you were absolutely crazy about, you would do anything for them. You, you'd open the car door. You, you brought flowers home. You left little notes around the house about how much you loved them. You remember those days? You remember when those acts were done out of delight? But now doing those same things seems like a chore. A burden. Maybe it's because you've abandoned your first love. Maybe you have begun to take that person for granted. I think this, is, this passage is a great reminder for us today. That, that you may be strong in doctrine, theology, and morals. You may be doing a lot of good things. But maybe those good works are done without a passion for Jesus. This is so dangerous. We see in verse 5 that Jesus doesn't want your good deeds without your heart. That Jesus says that he's going to shut these types of churches down. And I wonder, you know, there's so many churches shutting down every week in America. And I wonder if it's because they have lost, they have abandoned their first love for Christ. They cared more about, you know, there's certain ministries in their church to each other, and they've lost their love for God and their love for others. So he gives this church a plan for how they can rekindle their passion, and I love this. Look down at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you 
repent. Jesus gives this church two things to do, or he will come and remove this church from its place. That's strong language. I mean, here, like, oftentimes we think Satan is the one who shuts down churches. Here we see Jesus is just, I'm done with this church. I'm removing this lampstand from its place. Remember, a lampstand is church. Jesus walks, present tense, in the midst of the church. He is present. He is protecting the church. So if a church is removed, it's only because Jesus has first removed it. So what advice does he give this church to renew their passion? First, he says, to remember. Remember. Remember from where you have fallen. The solution for us is to think, to remember about the gospel, that we meditate on the gospel. That, that's how we renew our love for Christ, is we meditate, we think about the gospel. But what is the gospel? Studies sadly show that most Christians cannot even explain the gospel. When asked, can you explain the gospel, most Christians can't formulate really what the gospel even is. They, they might name the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they can't explain what the gospel really is. I'm sure they're not talking about our church. I'm sure all of you, if I asked, what is the gospel, you could clearly tell me what the gospel is, right? Just kind of nod with me. How can we meditate on the gospel, which is what's going to stir our affections for Christ, if we don't even know what the gospel is. Well, I want to show us a video. It's an old video. If you were with me during BCM days, you've seen this video possibly. But I want to, it's a, it's a great video. It's helped me to think through what is the gospel. So let's watch this video together. It's the full story of life crushed into four minutes. The entirety of humanity in the palm of your hand crushed into one sentence. Listen, it's intense, right? God, our sins, paying everyone life. The greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told, God. Yes, God, the maker and giver of life. And by life, I mean any and all manner and substance, seen and unseen, what can and can be touched, thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, and oceans, God. All of it is handiwork, one of which is masterpiece, made so uniquely that angels look curiously. The one thing in creation that was made with his imagery, the concept, so cold, it's the reason I stay bold, how God breathed in a man and he became a living soul. Formed with the intent of being infinitely, intimately fond, creator and creation held an eternal bond. And it was placed in perfect paradise till something went wrong. A species got deceived and started lusting for his job. An odd list of complaints as if the system ain't working. And used that same breath he graciously gave us to curse him. And that sin seed spread through our soul's genome. And by nature of your nature, your species, you participated in the mutiny. Our, yes, our sins. It's nature inherited. Black in the human heart. It was over before it started. Deceived from day one and led away by our own lust. There's not a religion in the world that doesn't agree that something's wrong with us. The question is, what is it? And how do we fix it? Are we eternally separated from a God that may or may not have existed? 
but that's another subject. Let's keep grinding besides trying to prove God is like defending a lion, homie. It don't need your help. Just unlock the cage. Let's move on on how our debt can be paid. Short and sweet. The problem is sin. Yes, sin. It's a cancer, an asthma, choking out our life force, forcing separation from a perfect and holy God. And the only way to get back is to get back to perfection, but silly us. Trying to pass the course of life without referring to a syllabus. This is us. Keep up your good deeds. Chant, pray, meditate. But all of that, of course, is spraying cologne on a corpse. Or you could choose to ignore it as if something don't stink. It's like stepping in dog poop and refusing to wipe your shoe. But all of that ends with how good is good enough. Take your silly list of good deeds and line them up against perfection. Good luck. That's life past your pay grade. The cost of your soul, you ain't got a big enough piggy bank. But you can give it a shot. But I suggest you throw away the list. Because even your good acts are an extension of your selfishness. But here's where it gets interesting. I hope you're closely listening. Please don't get it twisted. It's what makes our faith unique. Here's what God says is part A of the gospel. You can't fix yourself. Quit trying. It's impossible. Sin brings death. Give God his breath back. You owe him. Eternally separated. And the only way to fix it is someone die in your place. And that someone got to be perfect. Or the payment ain't permanent. So if and when you find a perfect person, get him or her to willingly trade their perfection for your sin and death in. Clearly, since the only one that can meet God's criteria is God, God sent himself as Jesus to pay the cost for us. His righteousness his death functions as payment. Yes, payment. Wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection we all cheered because that means the check cleared. Pierced feet, pierced hands, blood-stained son of man, fullness, forgiveness, free passage into the promised land. That same breath that God breathed into us, God gave up to redeem us. And anyone and everyone, and by everyone I mean everyone, who puts their faith and trust in him, and him alone can stand in full confidence of God's forgiveness. And here's what the promise is, that you are guaranteed full access to return to perfect unity by simply believing in Christ and Christ alone. You are receiving life. Yes, life. This is the gospel. God, our sin. So understanding that you have this God who's perfect, he's holy, and, and he created the world, and at the end of it all of creation, he said it was very good. But then man, our sin, man re rebelled from God. Um, and that rebellion created the separation between us and this holy God. But God still loved us. He wanted to be near his people, so he sent Christ to die. Um, he provided Christ for us that payment, so that we can have eternal life. And so gospel, G-O-S-P-E-L, God, our sin, um, paying everyone life. Like, that's what it's about, that Revelation 2, 5 commands us to remember the gospel, what Christ has done for you. 
In my life, whenever I lose zeal for Christ, um, whenever I feel like my passion for Jesus begins to decrease, it's always, it's always because I have forgotten who he is and who I was and what he's done for me. That I was a sinner. That, that there's no way I could have ever had a relationship with God. I, I, no matter how many good works I would have done, I could not have paid off my debt. That, that it, it took him coming and dying for me. And that he loved me enough to die for me. Me. I, who am I? I'm, no, I'm not anyone famous, but he would die for me. He died for me. He loved me. And not just died for me, but now he's lavished upon, upon me his riches. Like that story of the gospel begins to stir my affections. Like what he's done for me. Um, that's the whole picture here that this church, they just got busy with good stuff and they had forgotten that they were lost. They were probably, they could have been one of the priests or priestesses that, at this temple of Artemis. They may have been one of the prostitutes. Somewhere along the way, they forgot who they were and began to think, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. And that's what happens with us. We think, we're not that bad. Never murdered anyone. I don't know why we always go to that one. But you've done enough to create this eternal separation with God. And yet he loved you enough to lay down his life for you. If that doesn't stir your affections, I don't know what will. Knowing that he would lay down his life for you. You. Now I know you love you. But to think that God loves you so much that he would lay down his life for you. So we need to remember what Christ has done for us. Secondly, Christ commands us to repent. To repent is to have a change of mind, which results in a change of action and attitude. Let me say that again. To repent is to have a change of mind, which results in a change of action and attitude. Notice the word change is in there. It's to think differently about your sin. The things I used to love to do before Christ, I don't love those things anymore. And the things I used to hate to do, like I used to hate to go to church. In fact, I hated it so much I never went. I never read the Bible. I hated it. I don't want to read that. Now I love being with you guys on Sunday mornings. I hate to not miss. I don't want to miss church. I want to be here. That's repentance. Repenting and confessing are not synonyms. I think sometimes we use those interchangeably. They're not the same thing. Confessing is to apologize for your sin, whereas repenting is the act of moving in a different direction. And oftentimes we, we fall short of repentance. We just confess. Christ calls us to repent. That road that was leading you down that path towards that sin, Christ is calling you to repent. Go the other way. Stop walking down that road. It's dangerous. Here we see if they don't repent, then Jesus is going to remove that lampstand from its place. This is a promise that Jesus makes to where he's going to close the doors to that church. We're called to remember the gospel to repent of our sins, 
And I love the grace that Jesus shows this church at Ephesus and to us today. He he could have just wiped them off and been just to do so. But he, he gives them a redo. He gives them a second chance. Jesus believed that neither the Ephesian church nor you are too far gone to where he can't step in and provide help and bring you back to him. Verse 6, Jesus transitions from condemning the Ephesians' behavior back to celebrating their behavior. Verse 6, he says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is strong language coming from Jesus. It's not often when we read about things that Jesus hates, where God hates something. Here he says he hates the works of the Nicolaitans. Now who in the world are these guys? No one really knows. Some think that they are followers of Nicholas. It's a pretty good guess, right? Nicholas was one of the first deacons in, um, in Acts chapter 6. But we really don't know if that's the, the Nicholas that these uh, Nicolaitans were following. The word is only found twice in the entire Bible. Here, in this verse, and then also a little later, same chapter, verse 15. That's it. Uh, It seems like from the context that these are people who practice idolatry, immorality. uh, And and so Christ says, I hate their works. We close this morning with verse 7 where he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the church is, I pray that this morning that, that you hear, that you have an ear and you hear. Which means some of you may have an ear, but you don't hear. You have these things, but Christ says you don't always use them. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is, I love, this is so beautiful. There's a play here on Old Testament. So verse 7 looks forward to John's vision of New Jerusalem. What's amazing here is these lampstands and this language of tree of life. So in the Old Testament... In the tabernacle, you you had these lampstands, and they were designed to look like the tree of life back from Genesis 2. Instead of having their lampstand removed, like in Revelation 2, 5, the Ephesians are offered the real thing, this tree of life. It's absolutely beautiful. So here, they're like at this fork in the road, like you can either have this tree of life removed from you, or you can take and eat. But it's up to you. What are you going to do this morning? He says, to the one who conquers. Now, don't think for a moment that he's talking about you. You conquering your sin because we don't do a very good job of conquering our sin. We usually limp along this life. To the one who conquers, it's a reference to where Christ became victorious on the cross. Ultimate victory is with God and God alone. It's not about the golden streets, uh, the mansions, or seeing all the loved ones that we've lost. It's about Christ. We have been granted to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, where is, where is that? What is that? What is paradise? Well, it's a Persian word that means a beautiful garden or a park. Biblically, It is the place where the righteous go to be with God. 
is a place where sin is not present and God dwells. It is a place where Jesus is. That's what makes a paradise. We will be with Christ forever. This tree of life is for you this morning. We will be with him forever. It's a promise for you that you can grab a hold of. The question for you, though, is will you be there? Will you be there? Are you trusting in your good works, your good deeds to get you there? Because that will never lead you to paradise. The way you get there is by repentance. So have you repented of your sin? Have you made Christ your Lord and Savior? Lord and Savior means you're trusting in him to be your salvation, that he died in your place. Lord means that you've given him ownership of your life, your time, talent, treasure. They all belong to Christ. Have you given them back to him? That's what it means to make him Lord. Or are you still being Lord of your own life? See, our conquering, our victory is simply a participation in Christ's victory. You and I will have the right through Christ to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. Think about all the movies, um, all the stories about the fountain of youth, the search, you know, whether it's Indiana Jones, searching for the Holy Grail, because it's going to bring you know, youth and eternal life. It's offered here from Christ. The tree of life takes us back to Genesis 2 and forward to Revelation 22. What Adam and Eve lost in the garden through sin, you and I regain in Christ through the cross. So that's what we celebrate. That's what we fix our minds upon. If the band would come back this morning, we're going to continue to sing about this incredible gospel story and as you sing remember the gospel these aren't just words just to a tune this is the gospel we're singing about remember what christ has done for you repent of your sin this morning renew your love for christ let's pray father may we have ears to hear May, Lord, we not be a church that just does a bunch of good deeds so that people can pat us on the back. But inside, we've lost, we've abandoned our first love. May that, may that never be true about this church. May all the good deeds that we do, may they all come out of a great appreciation for what you've done for us. That you've loved us when we've not been very lovable. That you've rescued us. That you've given us this tree of life. That we live forever and ever and ever. So Lord, I pray that all the good things we do come out of a heart of gratitude. That we understand the gospel. So Lord, I pray that you would stir our affections this morning. That for those who come in dry this morning, that we would leave just satisfied in you. I pray all this in Christ's name.